Um, I'm going to read the first few verses, a verse in the middle, and then the last few verses. And uh, those aren't the most important verses. That's not why I'm reading them. In part, I'm reading them because I'll be reading the rest of it as I go through the sermon. So we'll go section by section as I go through the sermon. But uh, remember, normally we're standing and reading the whole of God's Word to say, this is what we're, this is what we're here to hear, is God's Word. So I don't want to lose that sense today, even as I just read portions out loud at the outset. So if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, I'll kind of guide you through what we're doing. First, Judges 10, verses 1 through 5. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. Now look at chapter 12, verses 7 through 15. Chapter 12, verses 7 through 15. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in, the city in, in his city in Gilead. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters, and he gave in marriage outside, that he gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, died and was buried at Pirithon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. You can be seated as we pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we acknowledge we are people who need your word. We need to hear from you. So, Father, work in our midst through your word, by your spirit, the sword of the spirit, your word. Cutting through ideas that need to be cut through, encouraging and strengthening us in ways we need to be encouraged and strengthened, transforming our minds, renewing them. We yield ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'd like to tell, talk about one of the telltale signs of whether a certain stream of Christianity is healthy or not healthy. And it is this. Is it God-centered or man-centered? God-centered or man-centered? You can apply this criteria to a book, a Christian book, or a Christian speaker. You can apply it to a denomination or a church. But you can also apply it to yourself, to your prayer life, to your own theology. Is it God-centered or is it man-centered? I think this is an important theme to broach this morning because our passage brings this distinction to the forefront. So chapter 10 compares a God-centered versus man-centered view of repentance. The first half of chapter 11 compares a God-centered versus man-centered view of God himself. The second half of chapter 11 compares a God-centered versus man-centered view of religion. And then chapter 12 compares a God-centered versus man-centered view of God's work. 
it shouldn't be surprising to us that this contrast comes at this point in Judges, because Judges has now taken a turn in a decidedly downward direction. From this point on in Judges, we won't hear again of the land having rest. That was a refrain you heard over and over in the beginning of Judges. No more words about the land having rest. And from this point on in Judges, the focus is much less on the enemies that are out there and much more on the dysfunction within Israel. That'll make mention here and there of the enemies, but really now the problem is the dysfunction within Israel. The real issue in the book of Judges is coming into focus. Israel's heart. The bulk of our chapter, or the couple of chapters that we're on, is the story of Jephthah. And Jephthah is much like any, any of our other heroes that we've read about so far in Judges. God uses Jephthah to bring about a victory. But what's different is that the focus of this story seems to be less on God's victory and more on this unusual sacrifice Jephthah makes of his daughter and then a brutal civil war that breaks out that costs the lives of 42,000 Israelites. You see, even as it's talking about this judge who brings deliverance, it's focusing on how things are going down, down, down. And what the author is trying to help us see is that it's Israel's heart that is the problem. Even the listing of the five minor judges that we read at the outset, the two at the the beginning of the passage and then the three at the end, draws our attention to the fact that things are spiraling downward. Their collective reigns, if you add up all the years of their reigns, are quite long. And if you look at their credentials, they seem like powerful, impressive men. They had big, strong families. They had upper-class transportation. That was what the donkeys were. And they had cities that they ruled. Yet, five of the twelve judges in the book of Judges aren't said to bring rest. Their stories aren't even fit to be told. We don't hear them defeating any enemies. And the only time salvation is mentioned, right in chapter 10, verse 1, it's not made in connection to a foreign enemy, but in relation to the time of Abimelech's reign. And both lists end with the same refrain, the people again did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. So the book of Judges is moving us closer and closer to the heart of Israel's problem. The issue is not out there, ultimately. The issue is in here. And that's why this idea of man-centered versus God-centered is so important and so clearly on display in Jephthah's story. How can these people who were religious have been so wrong? You see, the author is trying to draw our attention to the root cause of Israel's unhealth and dysfunction. So this is how we're going to proceed this morning. I'm going to just give that heading again for each of the four sections. I'll read the heading, and then I'm going to read the passage that that heading is for, and then I'll briefly explain that section. That's the plan. So let's begin with the first section. The first comparison is of God-centered versus man-centered views of repentance. God-centered versus man-centered view of repentance. And look at, let's look at chapter 10, verses 6 to 16. Follow along with me as I read. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook Yahweh and did not serve Him. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed 
And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, saying, We've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And Yahweh said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to Yahweh, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Yahweh. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Our section begins with the familiar refrain, the people of Israel again did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Though that's a refrain, the level of depravity reaches a peak. You might have noticed at the beginning how the author, author piles things on. They serve the Baals, the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistine. The stack goes seven layers high. I mean, these guys were out-paganing the pagans. It's like Israel says to the pagans, you think your polytheism is impressive? Here, hold my rupee. It doesn't seem there's a God they won't chase after. Oh wait, except one. At the end of verse 6, they won't serve Yahweh. So God in His anger hands Israel over to her enemies. It goes like this. You cut yourself off from the good and wise God you will feel the effects of the loss. And boy, did Israel ever. It says they were crushed, oppressed, severely distressed. And that's what leads us to the two examples of repentance. The first one is given in verse 10, and the second in verses 15 and 16. Now, in some ways, these two acts of repentance seem similar, but there are several clues in our account that show that these are two very different examples of repentance. The most obvious is how God responds to each. To the first, he vows, I will save you no more. To the second, it says, he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, there are other clues that we just don't have time to get into. But the, the passage is showing us that there are two decidedly different examples of repentance. I think it's giving us these two examples so that we can have compare a right way and a wrong way to repent. So let's look a little bit deeper at that verse, first one in verse 10. We sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and served the Baals. Now, this is my assessment, simply. It's a self-centered, skin-deep repentance meant to manipulate God. They've learned this formula. When we're in trouble and we need God's help, we can just say these words, and boom, God comes to our aid. I mean, if we've been reading through Judges, we've seen this movie before. We We know how it goes. They say that, God helps, and then right back, they're sinning again. As soon as trouble is averted, they scurry right back to their former ways. Throughout the book of Judges, it's like God is viewed as a giant vending machine in the sky. You just dial up the code the right way, and boom, He gives you whatever you want. He's a malevolent genie in the sky that just needs to hear a certain formula and then... Voila, he gives you whatever you wish. 
these Israelites viewed God to be in their service instead of vice versa. And that's the essence of man-centered repentance. But God's had enough of it. And he says, I will save you no more. He declares, cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. You see, God has drawn a line in the sand. He's not going to allow himself to be manipulated by these self-seeking people. Now, at a certain level, that commitment, I'll save you no more, holds true. As I mentioned, we don't hear of Israel finding rest again. And even her victories from this point on in the book are only partial victories. And yet, there is a change after the second cry of repentance. The second repentant cry, though it has some of the same words, is entirely different. And it prompts even a God who no longer save, to at least bring some relief. So it's there in verses 15 and 16. You see what they say? We have sinned, same line, but now do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us on this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Yahweh. Israel no longer has herself on the throne. She's ceded the throne to God and has cast herself entirely at His mercy. You see, her repentance is God-centered instead of man-centered. She acknowledges God to be God and in a sense prays, Thy will be done. She acknowledges that she does not deserve God's mercy. She is decided, she's now decided to do right And obey God, but she says, regardless of the outcome, that's what we're going to do. Even if her situation doesn't change, she's going to keep doing what she ought to do. Now, if you're reading along in Judges, you can question whether this will actually hold through for more than a few weeks or whatever, but that's not the point the author's making. The author wants us to see the difference God centered versus man centered repentance. So let me bring these two comparisons into, into kind of one, one assessment that describes three traits of God-centered repentance. Three traits of God-centered repentance. First, we must come to God understanding we deserve nothing. We deserve nothing. God doesn't owe us anything. We repent because it's the right thing to do, not because of what it will get us. Second, we come to God abandoning our thrones and surrendering to God. Abandoning our thrones and surrendering to God. We tell Him our sin. And then we pray, do whatever is right in your eyes. We allow Him to be God. And we quit trying to play God ourselves. We enlist ourselves in His army instead of expecting Him to enlist in our army. Third, we make sure our actions back up our words. Our actions back up our words. We're careful not to give lip service to God. That doesn't mean we'll be perfect. But if we're truly turning to God, there will be significant changes. We will immediately begin to tear down the idols and rivals to God that exist in our lives. And where there is this kind of God-centered repentance today, you'll find healthy Christians and healthy Christianity. That's our first section. The next section compares God-centered versus a man-centered view of God. God God-centered versus man-centered view of God. And it runs from chapter 10, 17 through chapter 11, verse 11. So follow along with me again as I read. 
Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was a son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when the wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and Yahweh gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Yahweh will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before Yahweh at Mizpah. That is a pretty interesting story. Ammonites have been ravaging Israel, and they set up camp against Gilead. And Gilead is feeling particularly desperate. They need someone who's going to lead their army against the Ammonites. But they're going, all right, who's going to go? Then they remember something, or namely someone, Jephthah. Jephthah's their half-brother. He was the son of a prostitute. Now as they grew up in their self-centeredness, they didn't want to share their inheritance with him. So they made some kind of threats to him. And because of that, he flees. But he proves to be quite the warrior, and a group of reckless misfits gathers around him. And they do pretty well for themselves. And so now when the people of Gilead are looking for a warrior, they go calling on him. Now Gilead has every reason to be skeptical, doesn't he? So he presses them. After all the terrible things you've done to me, Now you're calling me to bail out your skin? So, he promises to come to them on one condition. That they promise to make lasting changes, to let him be the actual head over them. In other words, he doesn't want to just be used by them to gain a victory and then be promptly rejected again. Now, why are these details given here. Why are we given access to Jephthah's backstory? I think juxtaposed against how Israel just treated God, the parallels are just too obvious to ignore. How Gilead treats Jephthah mirrors almost exactly how God's people Treat God. As you hear this story, you're disgusted at how self-serving the Gileadites are. Their lust for money causes them to abandon their brother. But then they're quick to call him back when they're in a time of need. But if we're alert, we recognize that this is the exact sequence that just played out with Yahweh. His people reject them because they think by following these other gods it will benefit them more. And yet, when they're in trouble, they cry to Him for help. And then He rebukes them and refuses to help them unless they could commit to rightly embracing Him as their God. 
And then when the people humbly repent and embrace Yahweh as their King and God, He comes to their aid. You see, sometimes we fail to see how badly we're treating God until we see the same actions done to a fellow human being. I know I've learned that as a parent. All of a sudden, my kids are treating me a certain way. I'm like, oh, that's how I treat God. So here, the writer of Judges plops Jephthah down in front of his readers and says, consider how evil they were treating Jephthah. That's how you've been treating God. In other words, Israel's been treating God like the son of a prostitute. It's indicting. So that raises the question for us, how do we view God? Man-centered or God-centered? If we're man-centered, God is just there for our benefit. We reject God when He's of no use to us. When there's a cost, when it's hard, when it's not what we want, not what makes our life better, keep Him at arm's length. But when He can do something good, sure, then we want Him. But God will not allow it to be so. Like Jephthah, Jephthah, He demands full devotion. God isn't our illegitimate brother that we can call on and manipulate to do our bidding. He is Almighty God, the King of the universe. He's the one who sent His Son to redeem us from our sin. And He is the one who will come and conquer at the end to usher in His perfect kingdom. He delights to be our Savior. But we must come to Him as He is. God Almighty. And when, where you find this God-centered view of God today, you'll find healthy Christians and healthy Christianity. Now that brings us to our longest section, the third section. And this, this section really focuses on Jephthah himself, And it runs from 11, verse 12, all the way to 11.40, the rest of chapter 11. And this section compares a God-centered view of religion with a man-centered view of religion. So God-centered versus man-centered view of religion. So if Israel in the last section provided a positive and negative view of repentance, Jephthah provides us with both a positive and negative view of religion. Now before I read, I just want to tell you, Jephthah is mentioned in two other places in the Bible. He's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as a man whose faith we are to imitate. And he's mentioned by Samuel in his farewell speech in 1 Samuel 12 as a man through whom God brought deliverance. So we need to understand that there's going to be something in Jephthah that is commendable, a faith that we should imitate. And we'll see that in our first encounter with Jephthah from verses 12 to 28. So here's where we're going to see the positive side, the God-centered view of religion. 11, 12 to 28. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you've come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through all the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab 
and arrived at the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for, Aaron was the, for Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then Yahweh, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that Yahweh, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend with Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? Well, Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Orior and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years? Why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. Yahweh, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent him. So Jephthah agrees to take the lead in the battle against the Ammonites, but he chooses to attempt diplomacy as his first line of attack. So he sends the Ammonite king, asks what his grievance is. The king responds, Israel's stolen his land and he wants it back. Now the response that I read, Jephthah's response, is amazing. In chapter 2, we were told in Judges that this is a time when people did not know Yahweh or the work that he had done for Israel. In that time, Jephthah reveals a remarkable knowledge of both Yahweh and what he had done for Israel. If you go back and check his recounting of history, he's biblically spot on. You see, in a time when no one else was, Jephthah was a man of the book. He knew the Bible that he would have had then. And he knew the God therein. Verses 14 to 22 of his speech summarize parts of Numbers and Deuteronomy, where God ultimately is the one who gives Israel the land of Sihon, because Sihon, unprovoked, waged war against them and lost. Jephthah nails every detail. He knows his Bible. And then in verses 23 and 24, it shows that he doesn't just know his Bible, but he knows the, the God of that Bible. He tells them, Yahweh, Yahweh has won this land. It belongs to him. It's like, you're welcome to whatever land your God owns, but this land is Yahweh's. You see, he's thinking right. God's the one who won the victory. This belongs to him. The only way, reason Israel has any claim to it is because it's actually Yahweh's and he's allowed us to have it. Then he returns again in verses 25 to 26 to showing that he knows his Bible. This time, he summarizes the story of Balak and Balaam from Numbers 22. I'm not going to review that whole story, but basically God stopped a Canaanite king from attacking Israel by stopping this false prophet, or this prophet, from prophesying. And I think the implication he's raising in pointing out that story is perhaps you should learn a lesson from this pagan king who is wise enough not to fight against Yahweh. Balak didn't do it, maybe you shouldn't either. Jephthah knows his Bible. 
And once again, Jephthah moves from describing biblical history to making a point about God himself. So he goes like this. Biblical history, point about God. Biblical history, point about God. Being a man of the book means more than just knowing the Bible. It means knowing the God of the Bible. So do you see that in verse 27? Jephthah says that God is the judge. In the book of Judges, God is the ultimate judge, capital J. He understands that both Jephthah himself, that he himself, and the Ammonite king will stand before him one day. And he feels that that view should shape everything. Jephthah's a man of the book. He knows his Bible, and he knows his God. And that's why he has a confident boldness, even the face, in the face of a mighty king bent on destroying Israel. His theology goes past his head. He lives it. He's a man of faith, acting on the word of God. May we be like him in that. Now it's interesting, because the Ammonite king is completely unmoved by the speech The only reason that the writer includes it is to show us a glimmering example of God-centered religion. He gets this right. But the story doesn't end there. Things take a drastic downward turn in verses 29 to 40. Because the man of the book starts mimicking the man-made religions around him. Listen as I read this, verses 29 to 40 of chapter 11. Then the Spirit of Yahweh was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, And whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be Yahweh's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and Yahweh gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Oriar to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel-Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low, and you've become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to Yahweh, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to Yahweh. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that Yahweh has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, "Let Let this one thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She'd never known a man. It became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. You see, what Jephthah does is he takes a page out of pagan religion and attempts to manipulate God so that God will have to do what he wants. He promises a sacrifice. Whatever, or it could be translated, whoever comes out of his house to meet him. I'll sacrifice that to you as long as God brings victory. 
Now you should know this was the days before domesticated pets. The only thing or person that was going to come running out the front door to meet you would be a person. So Jephthah here has gone totally pagan. Now in paganism, God is not known. You have to use kind of your intuition and sense. Is this what God wants? You're chasing after oracles and omens, reading the signs. What does God want? He's unpredictable. You don't know how he's going to act or how they'll act. So if you want to entice them to help you, you have to bribe them. You have to manipulate them or cajole them. The gods are these other beings out there that you can try to leverage for your own good, fertility, your crops, or whatever it is. So listen, church. Whenever we think, if I give God this, He'll be more obliged to give me that. That is pagan thinking. God's deliverance and His grace to His people is never beholden to what gifts His children can use to entice Him. But Jephthah here goes full-on pagan. Not only does he offer a gift, he offers human sacrifice. I want you to just listen to Deuteronomy 12, verses 29-31 to 31 as I read it. It says, When Yahweh your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land. So when you, when you go into this land, like where they are now in Judges, take care that you're not ensnared to follow them after, you've been, after they've been destroyed by you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods that I may do the same? You shall not worship Yahweh your God in that way, for every abominable thing that Yahweh hates they've done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Jephthah, you're a man of the book. You should know that. And yet that's exactly what Jephthah does here. An abomination. So he makes his vow. Sure enough, God brings the victory. And wouldn't you know it, when Jephthah gets home, it's not a servant or a soldier that comes running out to meet him. It's his only child, a daughter. I think this is where the story gets interesting for many of us. Because though we might fault Jephthah for his pagan vow, it's harder to fault him for his willingness to follow through on that vow. I mean, he comes at such a high personal cost. I mean, this seems like glistening integrity. And then you hear his daughter's speech in verse 36. Melts your heart. My father, you've opened your mouth to Yahweh. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. I mean, there's a part of us that really admires what we see here. And yet at the same time, there's a part of us that's disgusted by it. I think the way the story's told to draw our sympathies for he's trying to follow his vow, he's great cost to him, it's meant to, to create angst in us. We're supposed to feel torn. Because that's the nature of the book of Judges. The book of Judges isn't about people doing evil in their own eyes. Judges is about people doing right in their own eyes. Piety always looks good. But misplaced or misaligned piety is evil. See, our story makes no mention of Jephthah looking to God to resolve his dilemma. The man of the book makes no search of the book. If he had, he would have found that in Leviticus 27, it spells out, Monetary valuation for vows related to human beings. So there would have been no need to kill his daughter. He could have paid a certain valuation to God instead, according to Leviticus 27. But there's something even better that he could have done. He could have repented of the pagan vow that he'd made in the first place. Let me give an example. 
let's say I vow to blow up the church. It doesn't make it right in any way for me to go ahead and blow up the church. I only double my sin. I should repent of my first vow and not add to my sin by following through on doing the evil thing that I vowed. But you see, this is what happens when we have a man-centered religion. Instead of looking to God as the authority, we're trying to navigate it ourselves. And me and my concerns are what matter most. So I leverage God to get this, and now I feel obliged to Him because I want to keep working my angles. God exists out there. Perhaps He's a bit distracted or uninterested, so I need to rouse Him. I need to cajole Him. I need to stir Him up so that He somehow takes notice of me and acts on my behalf. And that's not the God of the Bible at all. He loves us. He's a God who knows what's going on in our lives. He knows our needs before we even ask. And this story of Jephthah shows just how terrible man-centered religion can be. It can lead us into the darkest of places where we're killing our own children thinking it's right. Listen, if a man of the book like Jephthah can be so accustomed to the paganism around him that can affect even him, none of us should think that we're immune. We need to resolve ourselves to know our God, to know our God from the Bible, not from the culture's understanding of what is good and right. Let us be people of the book who follow the God of the book. And where you find this kind of God-centered view of religion today, you'll find healthy Christians and healthy Christianity. Now we're going to turn to the fourth and final section, this time comparing God-centered versus man-centered view of God's work. I'm going to be very brief on this. It's verses 12, one to, chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. Let me read it. The men of Ephraim were called on to arms, or were called to arms, and they crossed at Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to him, said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you. You did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And Yahweh gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a city in Gilead. Now, if you're paying attention as we go through Judges, you know this is a rerun. We've heard a similar story. Back in chapter 8, the Ephraimites had spoiled Gideon's victory parade by complaining that they didn't have an important enough role, and they do it again here. They love to show up at the victory parade and complain about how the glory should have belonged to them. You see, they're not loyal to God and to His people. They're loyal to themselves. As long as fighting for God brings personal glory, they're happy to enlist. You see, God's good acts, His mighty deliverances, are ultimately about them. When we have a God-centered view, we want God to receive the glory, and we're glad to play whatever role He wants. 
But when we have a man-centered view, we want the glory for ourselves and are only happy when our name is in the lights. Some Christians and some churches are this way too. Unless we have a hand in it, we're quick to be critical of any work done for God's kingdom. Such people or churches may appear pious when they're the star, but when they're pushed to the sideline, their true heart emerges. But here's the bottom line of the story. God's won a great victory, but because of pride and arrogance, this great victory is marred by a bitter civil war that cost the lives of 42,000 Israelites. And still today, wherever you find this man-centered view of God and of God's work, you'll find unhealthy Christians on unhealthy churches. So we've seen how man-centered we can be in repentance. How man-centered we can be in our view of God. How man-centered we can be in our view of religion. How man-centered we can be in our view of God's work. It's convicting. I mean, why, why are we so man-centered I mean, our whole religion can be tainted by our man-centeredness. Why? It's because our hearts are born with a bent toward ourselves. And the bent is so strong that it bleeds into everything, including our religion. So, of course, if we can concoct some form of Christianity that still plays to our man-centeredness, why wouldn't we? pervasive problem, but what's the solution? Do we hear the sermon and just resolve, try harder to be God-centered? I'm never against trying to be God-centered. But if that would work, we as Christians through history would not be repeating these same mistakes over and over again. And it's not the solution that the book of Judges points us to. Judges says this is part of the problem, but it doesn't say the solution is to try harder. The solution we found as we've been studying Judges, the solution Judges points us to is a king. And as we've seen, it's ultimately pointing us to King Jesus. Because Jesus did something that allowed our very hearts to be changed. The Bible says he rescued us from the domain of darkness that he paid the price to set us free from our depravity, that when we put our faith in him, his spirit comes to indwell us and our hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh. You see, the solution to our man-centered attempts at God isn't more effort. The solution is a God who can change our hearts because of what Jesus did. He alone can rescue. Which is why it's fitting that this morning we close our sermon with the Lord's table. Because this is the place that God has ordained for us to remember what it was that He did for us to rescue us. So let's pray.